The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. I thought tonight, before I start the talk, just to check in to see if anybody has any questions about the sitting practice. And don't be shy if you're new or experienced, but anything not seem clear or any experience that's arising that you don't know how to practice with. What is prayer? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Because, you know, normally we think of prayer in a Christian context or not so much in a Buddhist context, but I think there is prayer in a Buddhist context. Um, In Buddhism, one of the central principles is the power of intention. And so maybe the way to think about prayer in a Buddhist context is that we're using words to help the mind uh, see and pay attention to kind of hold really wholesome intentions, like may all beings be at ease. In a sense, it's a kind of prayer. The difference is, you know, in a monotheistic religion where there's a, a, a strong concept of God, for example, then we're that becomes very much part of what prayer is about, of connecting with some other being. But with Buddhism, what we're, what we're trying to realize is that this heart right here is capable of really beautiful intentions. And so uh, the prayer then is recognizing that this heart can have really wholesome wishes and, and, re, and sort of connecting with that wish over and over again. That wish for ourselves, that wish for other beings. Yeah. I think it's also appropriate, you know, in this context, to also ask for help. Um, To sort of recognize that, uh, like, I feel lost, or I feel like uh, um, I could use some support, right? So I think uh, we can ask for help. We can kind of put it out. But again, it's not so much like fixing the mind on where that help should come from, but really paying attention. Because this is a form of compassion to look at the heart when it's needy and to sort of uh, be transparent in a sense. There's kind of a principle I think this is a, we've been talking about this in terms of compassion, that when the heart, when the clear, open heart, mind, meets suffering, compassion arises. And so when, the, when our wounds are very obvious to us, being really honest, open, receptive to our own fear, our own hurt, our own confusion, in a sense, invites in the support we need. Now, it's not necessarily the support we want or expect, but you might find that our teachers show up in funny disguises. But when we're really fixed on 
this is the teacher I want. You know, I want the big guy in the sky, you know, who has all power to come and change the conditions of my life. Well, that may not happen. But if we're really connected to the difficulty in way, we might find that we get taken care of in, in ways that we, we couldn't have expected. But it means, you know, this is the trick. It means like really letting go of the expectations. That's the hard part. So that can also be part of prayer. It's in a way, though, we're, we're inviting ourselves to be patient and to recognize what's beautiful and good in our lives already. Like the teachers, the sort of wholesome influences that are already there. And we might feel, we may discover that we actually feel, feel held in this difficulty. So the conditions of our life are difficult, but there's a feeling of being held or supported. Like when, when we do touch a moment of being really open and transparent and, and kind of fearless, that's not personal. It's not like Mark who's being fearless in his life. Already it feels like it's uh, beyond the personal. And so it's fine to call that the divine, if people want to call that the divine. You know, often in Buddhism we don't like to use terms because then we get attached to them. But it doesn't mean that there isn't something beyond the self. The whole point in Buddhist practice is to go beyond the limitations of the concept of self or separation. So words... And, and in processes or activities that sort of support that going beyond the limitations of self or separation, you know, are really in line with the practice. There's even some books out now by Buddhists about prayer. I know Thich Nhat Hanh has something recently, and I can't remember the other one I saw, but there's been several out there now, which I think is good. Any other questions about practice before we go on? Greg? Uh, sitting tonight, I can feel, even though I'm sitting fairly straight, I can feel my body getting very heavy, just, you know, just got increasingly more heavy, and I thought, I mean, in the past, I'd, I'd shift around, and I'd try to, you know, avoid the pain that went with that, but this time I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just be open to whatever pain comes from that weight, just the body still my gravity taking its course. But it was getting really heavy. <laughs> and I'm just wondering how long, how far do I go with that mm-hmm. before I decide to do something about it? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the fact of the matter is, it is helpful to be still because the body and the mind are reflections of each other. So when the body is relatively still, the mind is supported. The, the stillness of the mind, the stillness of the heart is supported. So there are reasons not to move. But if, uh, if the posture is collapsing in a way that is disturbing the mind or disturbing the quality of wakefulness in the mind, then that may trump the, the importance of stillness. The key is not to get too tight about whether you move or not. 
but to explore, to experiment. So sometimes to really be have a very strong intention not to move, like you did tonight, Greg, and and see what the limits of that. Like at what point does that become unskillful, the not moving? And and then other times explore the intention to correct the posture so that you're always bringing the body back to alignment as soon as you notice that it's come out of alignment. You're not necessarily rushing back, but you're just sort of correcting. What what happens at times, when the, when the concentration deepens, it's like the body begins to reflect the depth of concentration. And so in a balanced, concentrated state, there's a lot of energy in the heart and mind. And then that manifests as a very bright posture, too. Just like the mind's bright, the posture's bright. Now, it will be different for each of us, depending on our age and our physical you know, wounds that we have had, doing all the things we did in our life. But you'll just have that experience sometimes. <coughs> so in this particular tradition of uh, Buddhism, there's not a big emphasis placed on starting with the perfect posture. In Zen, there's, especially in some particular uh, traditions of Zen, there's a real emphasis on discovering, creating, holding the right posture, and then basically learning how to live up to it. But in this practice, we let the posture evolve with the practice. I mean, there is, a, there is the intention to be relatively still, relatively upright, but there's also an, equal, an equally important intention to be relaxed and not to be creating undue tension by having this idea that I need to be really straight or really still. So it's a balance, and uh, it, it evolves with the practice. The more the mind settles, the more the body settles. The more the energy builds in the mind, the more the brightness builds in the posture. And there's almost like an energetic sort of sense. The body just knows how to come into that wonderful alignment. And so you might even find, you know, at times the body just comes back to its place. When the mindfulness comes into balance, the body just does it. And it's not even that you decided to make the adjustment. The body just makes its own adjustment. And you don't want to resist that. You just let the body do its thing. The point is not to intentionally move. So if the body moves just on its own, then let the body move on its own. Like so many things, it's in more of an art than a, you know, do this or don't do that. And we just learn by trying things. Any last comments or questions, Paul? I arrived late. What's the protocol for coming into meditation? Yeah. Well, the protocol, that's a good question. That's surprising. <laughs> I haven't brought it up. Mostly because I think people are very respectful, you know, and even though we live busy lives, it's really great that people arrive on time. You know, 95, 99% of the time, people hear and settle by the time the bell rings at, you know, 7.32 or whenever I ring the bell usually. So that's great. I really appreciate people's consideration and respect for the group. And uh, just a, another point about that, the center is usually ready by 7 or a little bit after 7, so a number of you do come early, but in case you don't realize it, you can come earlier if you want to sit for a longer period of time. But if you do come late, it's fine to just practice in the hallway, but if you peek in the window and it seems like there's some cushions you can walk to, 
or a chair that's close without having to bother a lot of people, like you know, a place on the aisle where you don't have to step over people, then just come on in. And, of course, some people may get upset by the creaking floor or by the sounds of movement, but that will be just some disturbance for them to work with. You know, and you come in with the intention to be as skillful as you can. So that means not creating a lot of tension or fear about coming in light or shame. So if that arises for you, then to just work with the shame or the tension, the fear of bothering people. Oh, that's just fear. That's just shame. And it's like this. Because that's how we support each other, is by practicing. Whether we're walking in the room late, or sitting, listening to somebody walking in the room late, or listening to somebody with a cold next to us, and hearing the little germs creep over. <laughs> All the things we have to put up with, especially in our space now that's kind of tight, it's really good practice. So I don't have a hard and fast rule about it, except to do, you know, we should do our best to get here on time, of course. And if you're really late, it's probably better to just wait. Like if you're, there's only 15 minutes or 10 minutes left in the sit, maybe just wait in the hallway. If you're five or 10 minutes late, and there seems to be a spot nearby, to just come on in. Mary, did you have a question? Um, in my limited readings, sometimes specific sensory perceptions that occur during meditation have some alternate meaning. meaning. Had happened just a couple times, kind of very overall numbness. And so, in the religion of science, I was thinking I was overbreathing. Over breathing? Yeah, overbreathing. And so, I, that was the first thing that came to my mind mm -hmm. as an explanation for it. And I don't think at the time that I was breathing deeply, so I don't think it was pulling out so much CO2. What, so, what might you suggest, Mark? First, <laughs> well, first, first of all, for the non medical staff in the room, what kind of numbness? <laughs> I didn't hear what you said. Yeah. Do you do you do you have a sense that it's actually the some nerve is being? It, it seems that way. Yeah. Because all kinds of strange sensations arise through the course of practice. If you feel, you know, if you feel like it's actually going numb, like your foot goes to sleep. Because no. if, if that's the case. Yeah, then, then of course, then you're probably tensing something that's pushing on a nerve. But if it's not that, then I wouldn't worry about it. Because there are a lot of uh, sort of energetic ways of holding that we're just not aware of because it's too subtle. So as, this, as the whole system quiets down, we'll just notice patterns of holding. And it's like, like various blankets or layers of subtle energy. Sometimes they're felt outside of the body. So it might actually be that you're feeling something that apparently is several inches away from what you think is the boundary of your physical body. And other times they're on the surface and below the surface of the body, the sensations. And they can be disturbing only because they're novel, not because they're actually necessarily disturbing. I mean, they may be painful, but it's, it's not like, I mean, there's often a lot of physical discomfort. This is often not more uncomfortable, but it's weird or unusual. So it kind of can be disturbing for the mind. But just when you have an, an unusual experience, just see it for what it is. It's just this. It's just the pins and needles, just the feeling of numbness. And to give it space or permission to be the way that it is. And, uh, you know, if you need to, just remind yourself that anything can happen and will happen. And uh, 
so that we, we have this mental attitude that nothing will surprise me. Whatever experience, mind state, physical state that arises, of course, because anything can happen. Quite literally, anything can happen. Feelings of levitation, feelings of weighing four ten, tons. So all kinds of perceptual dis, uh, disorders or disturbances arise, but they're not, they're not actually happening. It's just, do, it's kind of a concentration effect, and we don't need to uh, worry about it for the most part. You know, I mean, sometimes you'll be meditating at the same time maybe you're having a heart attack or having some sort of physical ailment, and then, you know, you should act accordingly. But, uh, but a lot of strange things happen. And, and the telltale sign, if you are worried about it, if it disappears when you stop meditating, you can bet that it's a meditation experience as opposed to some physical disorder that you need to see a doctor about. Well, except maybe that the concentration's settling. You know, the concentration's deepening, and so we're opening to experiences that we're not no normally noticing. Yeah, so in, in that sense, it, it can be sort of a, a useful barometer. When we start seeing things that we normally don't see, that's generally a sign that the concentration is deeper, that the, the mind's just less scattered. Yeah, so, but beyond that, I wouldn't, wouldn't put much. I mean, other meditative traditions will work with uh, maps of subtle energy, like the chakras is sort of a classic example. And, and those, uh, those maps actually represent how energy is or moves in the system. But in this tradition, we're not working specifically with those energies, but we're not ignoring them any, uh, either. So as the concentration deepens, we'll notice the subtle energy in the system in the body-mind system. But we're not intentionally trying to move it or change it, you know, like a Qigong meditation might do or various kinds of Kundalini practice might do. We don't do that. But that doesn't mean that energy doesn't move. It just, so sometimes when the mindfulness, the concentration is deeper, we might notice things on that subtle level. But we still have the same attitude, which is to let things be. And the whole premise is that the tangles untangle themselves. And constructing an ego, some center that's going to do the untangling, is itself an entanglement. And the best thing is just to fill the space of the present moment with that clear, receptive, loving awareness and letting everything happen on its own. So tonight I'm continuing with uh, a series of talks on compassion as a way of practicing in daily life. Of course, we can cultivate compassion as a formal meditation practice. One of the Brahma-viharas, or the divine abodes, these four emotions, the Buddha said, were the only four emotions worth having. Loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. Just four flavors of the heart. And... Um, a little bit later in June, I'll talk about appreciative joy as another one of those flavors. But for tonight and then next Wednesday, I'll continue to talk about compassion, I think. And uh, one of the points I made last week that I just want to review, because, you know, everybody in this room, I'm sure, feels like compassion is a good thing. And so as a usual point of view, we think, well, I should be compassionate because it's a good thing. I should be loving 
I should care about myself and others. And, and so the mode, the way we think we should practice is, well, we, sh- we should imitate compassion. We should be compassionate. Like that's how you practice compassion, is you do something that looks compassionate. But in Buddhism, what we're, the practice is really understanding how natural things are. Everything is natural. And here, by natural, I mean that everything happens due to causes and conditions. So if we're interested in being more compassionate, more loving in the world, then the real practice is paying attention to what are the supporting causes for compassion to arise. So we notice moments when I'm being really loving and compassionate or when somebody around me is being really loving and compassionate. We try to intuit the supporting causes and conditions that were present that allowed that moment of compassionate action or compassion to be there. And so what I suggested last week is that the proximate cause for compassion is being open to suffering. If we can breathe in, be receptive to ordinary pain, like I have a headache today, I'm kind of getting over a cold, I've had this sort of pressure headache all day, and uh, you know how unconsciously we can just sort of live resisting ordinary pain like that. We're not even aware that we're sort of tightening up, like we're defending ourselves from the pain. Or we can be really receptive. And the more receptive we are, the more tender we become, softer in a sense. And our whole response to life flows out of that tenderness, that softness. That's what compassion is. It's the natural response to being receptive to what's difficult, to the suffering. So this is... uh, this receptivity, this opening to what's difficult is, as Joseph Goldstein called it, and I, I love this quote and I gave it last week, it's an empowering joy. So it's actually, there's a real um, force or power in compassion. It's not any kind of being defeated or weighed down. That's not compassion. That's feeling oppressed by difficulty. When we feel weighed down by the suffering around us or in our own lives, then we're being weighed down. That's not a wholesome state. That's an unwholesome state. So compassion is an enlivening state of mind, body, heart. I thought I'd read from uh, one of my favorite passages from Jack Kornfield's book, A Path with Heart, a really great manual of awareness practice. If you haven't read it, If you'd like some input in your meditation practice and more generally in your spiritual life, that's a really good book to read, A Path with Heart by Jack Kornfield. Somewhere in that book, I forget what chapter now, he uh, has this paragraph where he quotes from Trumpa Rinpoche, a well-known Tibetan teacher who started the Shambhala centers. You might have known about the Shambhala Center or Shambhala Sun Magazine was also started by his community that he started. And um, so Jack Kornfield's quote goes like this. Compassion may at times give rise to action, and at times it may not. 
It doesn't arise in order to solve problems, yet out of compassion flows action whenever it need be taken. True compassion arises from a sense that the heart has a fearless capacity to embrace all things, to touch all things, to relate to all things. Chogram Trumpa Rinpoche calls this, called this the, spirit, the spiritual warrior's tender heart of sadness. He said, when you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. You find that you are looking into outer space. What are you? Who are you? Where is your heart? If you really look, you won't find anything tangible or solid. If you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your rib cage and feel for it, there is nothing there but tenderness. You feel sore and soft. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely open, exposed. It is the pure, raw heart. Even if mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. It is this tender heart of a warrior that has the power to heal the world. It's a nice juxtaposition, this tender heart in the word warrior. And I think it's nice because it, there is this tremendous fearlessness that we develop in practice. This fearlessness that comes out of confidence from our experience that tells us it's okay to open. It's always okay to be open. Even when things are really dark and confusing and difficult, even when things are really beautiful and joyful. The appropriate response to life is openness, being undefended. Now, this is for us, now it's a hypothesis, but something to kind of grow into or to live into, like to learn in, you know, in, in stages, part by part, little by little, to learn how to be more consistently open and undefended. And then what flows from that is the compassion. So instead of thinking we have to go there first, we really see that it comes freely, naturally, effortlessly, if we're willing to cultivate that fearlessness, that willingness to be open or undefended. So it is true, you know, when people say things like, there's a famous quote by Simone Bale, is, it, is that how it's pronounced, that famous? Bay? Where it was said, uh, love is a command to action, not just an emotion. And Thich Nhat Hanh has another way of saying that. He says, compassion is a verb. So it's appropriate to think of compassion as doing something good in the world, or doing something good for ourselves. But just because that's true, doesn't mean that we should just go do something. Because that's, if we do it from that point of view, just to do something, then it's, we'll get exhausted. We'll get beat up in the world. We'll be disappointed when the world isn't fixed by our supposedly compassionate action. And then we get cynical, or we give up, 
So instead, what we do is we're unleashing this great force of nature. You know, I, the image I had today when I was reflecting on this talk is like, nobody tells the birds to fly south in the winter. They fly south. It's sort of the natural response for birds to fly south in the winter. And in, the, in exactly the same natural way, the heart will respond in a compassionate way if it's open, if it's undefended. Just like the seasons change. You know, nobody's making it summer. There's no sort of somebody behind nature, behind the seasons, kind of doing it all. Making the leaves come out, making the seeds fall, making the animals migrate. It just all happens literally effortlessly in the sense that there isn't anybody behind anything. I mean, you might say, well, the bird flew up. But what is the bird? If you really look, the bird is just this and that, all these sort of pieces put together, just like we're just pieces put together. There's no center to the bird, just like there's no center to me or a center to the woods or a center to Minneapolis. There's no center to anything. I mean, we can conventionally say that, you know, the center of me is here. Some of you think the center of me is here. But that's just a convention. There's actually no center anywhere. So we have to go beyond this idea of being the compassionate person. There's, there is compassionate action. And this compassionate action arises naturally, like everything arises naturally. And when we look, when we practice being mindful in our lives, we, we discover that it arises when we're open, when the heart is open, when we let life touch the heart. Another example, you know, from the Buddhist tradition of the naturalness of compassion Like even today, there are millions and millions of people on this planet, living beings on this planet, who are being positively affected by the teachings of somebody, some guy, 2,600 years ago. Now, that's pretty amazing. The benefit of those teachings over the centuries, how many people have been positively benefited by the compassionate action of the Buddha teaching for the 45 years or so after his insights. So for the Buddha, like what, what it caused, what allowed him to sort of set in motion that those good actions, you know, kind of teaching in the way that he, he taught, creating the different models that he used to teach meditation practice. Well, one of the results of his insight, his practice was being really open, really clear. And one of the first things he said, this is according to the tradition, if you read the suttas, the discourses of the Buddha, one of the things he told the monks and nuns and lay people after his awakening was that he was sitting there after his awakening for about a week. You know, he didn't go talk or see people. He just sort of sat there for a week in solitude. And uh, one of the insights he had after his awakening was that as he scanned the world, and evidently he had a lot of psychic power, so even just sitting there, he could sort of scan the world and get a sense of where everybody was at and what it was like for them. 
in scanning the world in that way, he realized that everybody wants to be happy just like he wanted to be happy. That in that sense, nobody was different. Everybody wants to be happy in exactly the same way. It's just that the way the ordinary people, what they do about their wish to be happy is exactly what creates their suffering. It's people trying to be happy that creates all the misery in the world. And that, in a sense, broke his heart in the same way that Trungpa Rinpoche talks about the spiritual warrior, that vast, tender heart. And the Buddha was moved to do something, to teach. At first, his inclination was just to sit there, not to teach. But in scanning the world in that way, and understanding that these people want to be happy, but what they do about it is causing misery for themselves and others motivated him to teach you know and it wasn't easy to teach and he wasn't he had to kind of figure out how to be an effective teacher how to share the re- one of the reasons he didn't want to teach at first according to the tradition is that he thought it was too subtle you know this idea of just being open like people would think well that's not going to work and they wouldn't believe it they wouldn't trust it enough to actually cultivate the practice It's a wonderful line from Einstein. Maybe you've heard it. We can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. So even once we start recognizing how much misery there is in life, and, I'm, and I don't mean this in the grand sense, which is true. There is a lot of misery in the sort of classic sense of people being impoverished, people experiencing great loss. But there's also just ordinary misery a kind of quiet misery that all of us deal with. So even when things are relatively comfortable for us, as it probably is for most of us now, there's just a, a sense that this isn't going to last forever. That's a quiet misery, just knowing that youth fades, death comes to everybody. Sickness, nobody here has gone beyond sickness. Nobody here has gone beyond loss of all the different kinds of loss. We're all vulnerable to those things, and we know it, and that's a quiet kind of misery. Even if right now it's a beautiful spring day and we're healthy, we're healthy enough, have enough good food, good friends. So to go beyond the great misery and the ordinary misery in life, we have we need a different kind of attitude or mind. And so that's really what the practice is about. It's about the shift. So to be a really, a truly loving, compassionate person, we have to get out of our normal mind state, which is being a person who wants to be happy, which is totally understandable that we'd want to be a person who wants to be happy. But when we're a person who wants to be happy, we're bothered by our own suffering and we're bothered by other people's suffering. So even though it may look like we're trying to take care of them, what we're really trying to do is fix their suffering so that it will no longer disturb our happiness. And that's not a compassionate action. That's bringing fear into the world and tension into the world and hatred into the world. 
or denial into the world. So to end tonight, I'll just briefly cover um, some principles of this change in attitude. You can call it compassion, or you can call it wisdom or equanimity, but just some flavors. And you've heard these before, and I'll, I'll, I'll go back to them next week because I don't have a lot of time now. But you can just begin to work with them. And we can think of these as just five flavors of uh, um, that arise when we open to things as they are, when we practice being open or undefended. And one is this quality of stillness. And see, this is something you wouldn't normally think of in terms of compassion, because, again, compassion generally has a sense of action. But there's a stillness in the midst of this action. Even when somebody's doing something really beautiful and great in the world, if it's really coming from a wise, loving place, there's a stillness there. This is from Sharon Salzberg's book, Heart as Wide as the World, another wonderful book. She says, what is most important is the mind's unshakable intention to see through to the root of suffering. We need strength, courage, and wisdom to be able to open so deeply, and then the compassion can come forth. And see, that's the stillness, that the non-reactivity of the mind or the non-reactivity of the heart is the stillness. Like, how is it possible to open or to relax? Like, I, we did a day-long retreat. I don't know if anybody here was at that retreat on Saturday, um, last Saturday. And, and the theme for that retreat was resting in the present moment, like, which is an, another way of saying that it's like trusting the present moment. And that's that stillness. It's the stillness of non-reactivity. And so that stillness of non-reactivity even happens in activity. So the resting doesn't mean there is an activity. So even if tomorrow morning you're in Miramar or at the local hospital or hospice doing volunteer work, totally engaged, active, that stillness of non-reactivity is still there and still can be seen or discerned. And this is really a fruit of practice. Those of you who practice for a while might even have this intuitive sense of what I'm talking about, that in the midst of activity, you can notice this quality of stillness in the mind. It's like a, this, the quiet um, hum or sense of space at the present moment. The stillness is that sense of there's something that isn't changing. In this world where absolutely everything is changing in terms of conditions, the mind is always changing in terms of the moods and the content of thought, always changing. Sensations of the body, always changing. Sounds are always changing. Smells, tastes, right? So the, the world that we normally think of is characterized by change. But in the midst of this world, not different than this world, is also something that isn't changing. And this is an insight that develops in practice. What that thing that doesn't change is, thing isn't the right word. 
In Buddhism, we call it the unconditioned, which is, you know, it's like, that's an easy word because it means the thing that doesn't change, right? Because the condition, all the conditions, those are the things that change. The five physical senses are constantly in flux, and the mind is constantly in flux. The mind in terms of the content, emotion, concepts, ideas, images, all that's always changing. But there's something that isn't changing, and we call that the unconditioned. And that's the stillness that we intuitively begin to recognize and trust. And this, it's out of the stillness that compassion arises, that compassionate action arises. And so the way to the intuition of stillness is to be open. First, we're just opening to activity. The activity of the mind, the activity of the body, the activity of the breath. That's the practice. But in learning to be more and more open to activity, we begin to discern intuitively what's the unconditioned, what's not the conditions. So other ways we talk about it, instead of unconditioned, you could call it the space of the present moment or the space of awareness. Or you can call it Buddha nature, although Buddha never used that term. The Buddha didn't talk about this much except to call it the unconditioned. And because if you give it a more specific name, then the ego wants it. <laughs> you know, it's like something to achieve, like getting to the top of Mount Everest. I want the unconditioned. But the ego thinks of the unconditioned as a something, which means it's a conditioned. Yeah, it's peace to get or happiness to get. But it isn't something to achieve because it's already there. It's always been here. It's something to wake up to. It's an insight that arises sometimes in big gulps, more likely in little, almost imperceptible. The intuition develops almost imperceptibly over time as we dedicate our life to being more open, more undefended. And right related with this is the don't know mind, which is a kind of humility, which I'll talk more about next week. And also another flavor of this is impartiality. Sort of moments of seeing, being able to see things from every particular angle. And really, what you see, it's really related to the humility. It's like not really knowing what's right or wrong. What's like, uh, we'll, we'll choose, but there's a kind of humility or impartiality. And so we're really willing to give it over to nature. Like, we'll just see what the personality does. So even though we make a choice to do this as opposed to that, there's no hardness in that choice. So if new information arises, we're very happy to make a different choice. Because now it seems like this is the appropriate thing to do. We're not attached to the choices we've made. We're simply being blown in the wind. And so when the wind is just like new information. The, new, the next moment provides new information, and so we're constantly... But it's no wait, because the whole system is choosing. It isn't Mark who has to constantly figure out what to do. Just like when the leaf falls from the tree, there's no part of the leaf figuring out how it's going to get from the tree to the ground. It just allows itself to be affected, to be co-authored by all the different conditions. 
and the we're doing the same thing, being authored by all the external and internal conditions that are arising in the moment. And then there's patience. And the last quality is this interdependence, or the kind of web of causes and conditions. No center, like I talked about earlier tonight. But for now, in terms of like how to take the practice home, maybe just work with the the sort of sense of stillness, like that, that, like the way to be more compassionate, to live a more compassionate life, is to cultivate openness by uh, by sort of orienting toward the stillness of the present moment. Really learning to trust that stillness and to see how activity can flow from that stillness. Really wholesome, loving activity skillful activity can flow from stillness. So, you know, when you go home and you see your kids, you know, like really meet them with stillness and see how the words flow out of that or the smile flows out of that instead of feeling like you have to do something. And we can share a little bit tonight if you have some experiences that seem relevant to this for questions about the talk. And also next week, I'll, I'll set aside even more time to, for people to share what they're learning. But what comes to mind now? We have about five or ten minutes for discussion. Tildar. This is a question uh, about, we just said that uh, compassion can be a result of understanding arrive at compassion and then I can understand that I will benefit from some compassion. I'm still benefiting from someone's compassion. So how does cultivating compassion benefit me? Oh, or is there some sort of a mechanism that would kind of help me well, like uh, that quote from Jack Kornfield, um, compassion may arise, may at times give rise to action, and at times it may not. It doesn't arise in order to solve a problem. And, and related to that, so when we cultivate compassion, it has no preferences where it goes in terms of action. And so if we're the one, if this body, mind, if this life situation is where the suffering is, the difficulty is, then the compassion will act here with this life. So the advantage of being compassionate is not only is it empowering, I mean, it is a wholesome, joyful state. It is a healing state of mind. And skillful action flows from it. So you will be more skillfully responding to your life situation with wisdom and love. And so uh, what can be done will be done. Now, sometimes things can't be done. But, but even if nothing can be done, just being in that place, in that loving, compassionate place, is already healing.
so for example if if we're at the time of death and because of our practice you know we have this inclination to open to the experience well then a great tenderness will arise it's like the sort of universal mother that that great tenderness holds the part of the personality the conditioned personality that inevitably will be frightened by death frightened by letting go of the body and will just that wisdom that love that's also true see we think you know because we have such a strong sense of self as a concept we think there's only one kind of thing here that actually there you know there's sort of some of the conditioned strands of the personality are incredibly stupid and ignorant and simple you know in a kind of simple way and some of the sort of conditioning is quite profound and wise and so that if we open that it will trigger it will be the natural cause for that wisdom that compassion to arise and it will create the loving space that will allow the rest of the personality to freak out let's say and have a difficult time and this is another telltale sign of practice deepening when you can have a full-scale panic attack or freak out and at the same time like going back to what I was saying a few minutes ago it's like there's that sense of stillness in the midst of this storm so there is a storm there is a freak out a panic attack great fear but there's also this great trust and stillness and peace it's the wisdom that understand it's just this and it's okay but there's still this happening but it's just this and so it's the stillness and activity that can coexist they're not contradictory they just conceptually it seems like it's contradictory experientially it's not contradictory and so that's ultimately how it helps us even when our life situation for example isn't going to get better you know whatever the difficulty might be any other comments or questions people have mm-hmm. I forgot your name could you remind me Vince That, that mindful awareness is a, a, a sort of an expression of the stillness. It isn't the stillness itself, but the fact that you're able to mind, be mindfully aware of, this, of the freak out is, the, is sort of the natural expression of wisdom and compassion. Yeah. Were you going to say something more? Yeah.
Yeah, exactly. I, I'm glad you brought it up, Vince, because I think it's a really good point. Because it's more com what you described is more common than noticing them both together. And this is sort of like the drowning. I like the drowning metaphor for this, where you go under and you're really lost in the in the difficulty, whatever it might be. But then you kind of come up and you have a few moments of treading water, or maybe just one moment. But in that moment, what you know is I'm drowning. Right, but there's an awareness that you're lost, you're caught, and then you go under. And then when you're under, you don't realize you're drowning. You're just drowning. You're panicking. You're freaking out. You're reacting to the suffering, and you're, there's no sense that I'm a suffering being even. And then in another moment, you're all above the surface. You realize, oh boy, I'm really losing it. This is really difficult. This is really painful. And then boom, you're lost again. But those moments, even though the, that moment of awareness that I'm really losing it is a moment of, of uh, to be appreciated. It's a, it's a moment of mindfulness. It, it arises out of wisdom and compassion or insight or stillness, uh, the unconditioned. And, uh, we, and we can really appreciate them. It gives us confidence. And then, in a way, when we go under again in the next moment, get lost it's almost like that activity of being a suffering human being is more porous we're still lost we're still freaking out like we always have but there's a sense of uh, even though we can't quite see it know it there's just a sense of it's not as heavy it's not as believable so it's almost like the sort of seriousness the reality of being a suffering being is getting lighter and lighter at some point, it's so light that we can see both at once, the freak out and the space or stillness at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Last, less long, the recovery is less severe. You know, all those things are telltale signs. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, Vince. And let's leave it here. Let's just take a moment, take a breath together, or a couple breaths together. Let go of the words. Appreciating the stillness, the space of the present moment here and now and all the activity in the midst of this present moment. Remembering our deepest aspiration practicing for the benefit of all beings cultivating wisdom, compassion, living in a way that is a cause for peace, freedom from suffering for all beings without exception. May all beings be at ease, free from suffering, and free from the causes of suffering.
Thanks for coming, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.